Good morning, church. Uh, it's been a while, hasn't it? I thought I needed to tour around the property just to remind myself how to get here. So thank you all for uh, your patience. Thank you for your um, willingness and maybe perhaps eagerness to give me a little break. Uh, appreciate that so much. Uh, it's also nice to come in after one of the staff guys have preached uh, the Sunday previous. So whatever the attendance may be, that it's on them and not on me. And whatever went wrong the last couple of weeks, that's on them. That's not on me, okay? So just want to let you know that. And uh, so, fellas, you are welcome. And um, so good to see you. I want you to get your Bibles now and go to Ephesians chapter 4. And um, we're looking at verses 25 to 32 and talking about life in the Spirit. This, uh, the topic or theme of the sermon is going to be sanctification. That is our process of growth to Christian maturity, which means that we become more and more and more to look like Jesus. Uh, this morning, I sure did appreciate uh, the young men that were helping in the band up here this morning. Yeah, fellas, uh, this is your church too. You're young guys, uh, but this is your church as well. And I'm not talking about Mike Carl and David Brown. Um, they're not young. But um, I, was, I had more in mind uh, Matthew and and David, and so I appreciate, and Nick Carl, Nick's getting old now, but um, I appreciate your willingness to use your gifting and abilities to help us to worship Jesus, and you're, you're so very much appreciated at this church, so thank you guys. Um, so sanctification, uh, growing and to be more and more like Jesus, it's a long process, it's a long road. Um, there is a difference in theology between Baptist and, let's say, those with charismatic theology. Uh, those that um, lean toward uh, the charismatic type theology, and uh, they believe sanctification happens by a, a lightning bolt. Uh, basically, God zaps you from heaven, and suddenly, bam, you are in the Spirit. And it's proven by certain miraculous uh, expressions that they would say would be life in the Spirit. We believe the Bible teaches something quite different, that it is a gritty, gutty, up-and-down experience. And it takes all of our life to continue to grow like Jesus. Sometimes, have you ever felt this way, that you're growing pretty good in the Lord and you're making progress, and then other times you feel that you're worse off than you were when you first became a Christian? And so that's the sanctification process. Now, the, be, growing to be like Christ, being sanctified uh, in life, um, you know, we, we want to understand and, and, and know some things right up front. I'll try to mention this repeatedly so we don't lose track of it. But the energy to pursue this life of sanctification is provided by God for the Christian. So the energy to pursue it comes from God. Also, the effectiveness of that energy exerted also comes from God. So the motivation plus the output, that's all of God and not of us. Now, what we do contribute to the sanctification process is action and effort. And so we genuinely do put forth that effort. Now, whoever it was that preached last week, and however bad job they did, just easy. So they, they probably talked to you something about putting off the old person, the old self, and putting on the new. And that's what, the, it's, a, it's an image there of what it means or looks like 
as far as our responsibility is concerned in growing to be more like Christ. It's like putting off an old pair of clothes and putting on a new pair. It's, now, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't mean there that it's just outward appearance that we're talking about. It doesn't mean that, but it's talking about if you can visualize that, that the old person, you're, you're putting them off and throwing them away, and the new person, that is the person that's connected to Christ, is what you're now putting on, and that's who you will be. When you go out on the street and somebody is wearing a blue uniform, you don't really need to know what their name is. You know what they are. Officer, I need help. Why is that? Because they have that uniform on. They are that person. They represent the law. That's who they are. No matter what their name may be, personally, that's what they are. And so as the Christian, it's the same way in the sense that when you put off that old person, who was in darkness and lived the life of death, and you put on Christ, you put on the new person, then that's what you become. You represent him now. You are walking with him now. You are a follower of Christ. That's what you are. Now, what does it mean, though, in reality to put on the new man? What does it mean in reality to put on the new self, the one that's renewed in the spirit of your mind and and created with the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness as verse 24 tells us. What does that look like? Well, the new self requires that we pursue these traits that are outlined now in verses 25 to 32. And I want to remind you, lest we forget, that the Holy Spirit is right in the mix. He's right in the middle of all of this. You're not doing it by your own strength. The outcome you cannot cause. But verse 30 reminds us not to grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed uh, for the day of redemption. So we're reminded again in this passage of Scripture that it's the Holy Spirit of God who is the active agent inwardly. But each human, each person that's a follower of Jesus must concentrate on these things and must take these actions. So first of all, in verse 25, putting on the new man, what it means is this. And... Putting on the new man and life in the spirit, it's the same thing, okay? So those are synonyms. We're talking about the same thing. So life in the spirit or putting on the new man. Here's what it entails. First of all, it's honesty of life. Look in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Honesty of life. Now, notice the manner of conversation here. Putting away, and and really in the Greek, there's the definite article. So putting away the falsehood. And and meaning the life of falsehood or the false life. What is the false life? The false life is the life that's lived by the lie. What is the lie? The lie that Satan told from the Garden of Eden. That God will not keep his word. And that God is trying to pull one over on you and make your life miserable. And God is the one that is halting your progress and joy and happiness. And so therefore, the way to self-actualize is to begin to live our lives as little gods. That is outside or out from under the scrutiny and authority of God. And so when we decide to do that according to the lie, then we'll actually be able to come what become what we've always wanted to become and reach our full potential. That's the lie. That's the falsehood. That is the the primitive and initial falsehood that came into the world and every sin from this point on has something to do with that lie. 
And so what the Bible is saying here is, put that aside, put away the falsehood. Stop the falsehood, stop the false living. But instead, speak the truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And here the word neighbor doesn't mean the person next door to you, though you should be truthful with them. But obviously in this context, it's talking about other Christians, and especially those who are members of of your local congregation, that you should focus on this. No false living in front of each other. But instead, speak the truth. Speak truth, the doctrine of God and the truthfulness of God and everything that God stands for. Speak those things to one another. And then he gives us the motivation for this. The motivation of connection is what causes us to live this honesty of life. He said, look at this motivation. For we are members one of another. Why do this? Why live this way? There's a reason. Because of the connection. You see, we are interconnected. Especially in a local church, there's a covenant commitment to one another. And we are connected by that commitment, which also entails a spiritual connectedness to each other. And if one part of the body is poisoned, if one part of the body develops gangrene, it will poison the rest of the body. What is that that we're trying to avoid here? What is it that will poison the body? It is the falsehood. Living the life of falsehood. False living will poison the body. So what is the reason that we don't do that, but instead we speak the truth to one another? Why is that? Because we're members one of another. We're connected. We're connected with each other. For good or for bad, we're connected to one another. One part of the body hurts, we all hurt. If one part of the body goes wrong, we all feel it. If one part of the body is sick, and I'm talking spiritual health here, we feel it because we are members one of another. See, here's something I I want you to recognize in this section of Scripture that Paul is teaching in a certain way. And there's a pattern here, and you can discover it yourself. You can see it. But here's the pattern. Like in verse 25, for example, he gives us the negative. Stop doing this. But then he gives us the positive. But start doing this. And then he gives us the reason. For we are members one of another. And you'll see that pattern all through this section of the scripture. You see, Christian living is not about just avoiding the dirty three sins, right? It's not just about that. Sure, we are to avoid or to stop the life of falsehood or false living according to the lie of Satan. Surely we're to stop that. But this is not about just gritting your teeth and trying to be better. Living the Christian life is focusing then on the right thing. What do you do? Put this into practice instead. Speak the truth to one another. Why should we do it? Because we're connected. We're members one of another. You see the pattern? You'll see it again. I'll show you again. So the honesty of life, if we're going to live life in the Spirit, if we're going to put on the new self, it requires that we pursue honesty of life. If we don't have honesty with one another, then there can be no spiritual growth in our lives. 
Secondly, the controllability of our emotions. We must pursue this. Now look in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, let me just quickly point out again the same pattern. If you'll notice, at the beginning of verse 26, this is the negative. Don't do this. Be angry and do not sin. Okay? And so then, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Even though that's said in a negative way, what it's really meaning is that's the positive action to take. And then you have the reason. Because to do so gives an opportunity to the devil. So that's the reason we don't practice it that way. Because it gives the devil an opportunity. So what does he mean here? He's talking about controlling our emotions. Now, the Stoics would say suppress emotions. People that were living in Ephesus at that time had that mindset. Uh, They followed Stoicism and that is suppress emotions. To express an emotion is just wrong. I know some Christians are that way. They think expressing an emotion is a wrong thing. No, emotions are not weeds in the garden to be extracted. Instead, they're plants to be cultivated. They're to be used rightly, not avoided, but used rightly. And so they're to be put under control. And so he talks about anger and sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do you see the command? What's the command there? You're commanded to do something. What is it? Be angry. Did you realize that as a Christian? If you can't get angry about sin, there's something wrong with you. We we live in a world now where men have been so feminized and they act as if you ever get angry about anything that you're sinning. That's not what the scripture says. It says, be angry and do not sin. So there's the balance. Now, it's important for us to know this word anger. What what does it mean here? In our English translation, we have uh, be angry and angry in verse 26. And then don't let the sun go down on your anger. And those two words are actually two different words. So it's easy to miss the point here. So the anger that he, uh, the apostle here is telling us to have is the kind of anger that is righteous and reasonable. If you're angry and out of control, it ain't this kind of anger. And if you're angry just because you got your feelings hurt, it's not this kind of anger. What this kind of anger is really aimed at is being angry about sin. Now, as Christians, many times we're really good at being angry at the sinner. That's easy to do. But are we really angry about sin and what sin does to people and how it dishonors God? And do we then see the sin in our own life and become angry at our own sin? There are reasons to be angry. We need to learn to hate the sin and what it does to people. The scriptures, under certain conditions, not only permit anger, but sometimes demand it. People say, so unchristlike, can you name a passage of scripture where Jesus got angry? Of course you can. When he made the whip and drove them out of the temple. Why was he angry? Because sin 
was preventing people, the common person, from finding God. He was angry. There are other times he was angry. He talked to the Pharisees. And he was angry at their self-righteousness. And the Bible says it. Right? Just plain out loud. This is why it's foolish of people to talk about, uh, say, say dumb things like this. Well, my God doesn't get angry. Well, you're serving a different God then. You're, in, you're, in, you're just encased in idolatry is what you're doing. You've, you've invented a God that looks like you. Or at least what you think you are. Ah, get out on Bridge Street. We'll see. We'll cure you of that no anger syndrome you got. Okay? So, yeah, you know, again... There's a time and a reason to be angry. And so this kind of anger that's spoken of, it's, it's a reasonable anger. But here's what he is saying. There's a reason it's reasonable and it's right to be angry about certain things. But do not let it settle into this brewing cauldron of hate. We have to be careful here. He's telling us, yes, be angry about sinful things, especially those in your own life. Look at those first. But do not sin in it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a, an application here that you're, you're going to love. I think many of God's people are sinning by watching too much Fox News. Do you know why I say that? Because you watch it and you fly into a rage. You're angry the rest of the day. You go to bed mad, and you get up and watch the morning news in the next morning and continue being angry. That's ruining your disposition. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to get news. I mean, you could also get angry if you watch CNN. That would also kill you as well, right? But it's not wrong to get the news. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. But man... When you feel that causing you to stay in this state of agitation and exasperation and irritation with everything because of all that's going on wrong in the world, do you know how they get you to watch it? They make you angry and you're addicted to anger and so you keep coming back. You have got to balance that with some healthy doses of God's Word. Turn that off and get in the book. You'll be reminded that, guess what? Joe Biden is really not in control of the world. He really isn't. And, and neither is Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not even in control of himself. So, you know, they're not in control of the world. They don't get to decide the course of history. God does. God raises one up, brings them down. That's what he does. He brings Nebuchadnezzar to the throne, a crazy man, in order to do his will. Then he yanks him off the throne, puts him out in the field, let him act like an animal. That's what God does. And so you have to, bow, or else you become this angry person. Sometimes we get that way about church, don't we? Things don't go our way or things are not going well. Maybe you have a justifiable reason for being angry about something. That's okay. But don't take that to bed with you. That's to be released into the hands of the Lord. See, some of us want to take on the role of God and try to vindicate Him. He doesn't need your help. 
Some of us want to take on the role of God and be sure that we punish people because they've upset us. God doesn't need your help. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. And we're not talking about church discipline. Are there times when church has to, for the glory of God, for the sake of God's reputation, do we have to discipline one another? But discipline is corrective. Discipline is to also help the sinner to change his or her ways. It's not about being vindictive. It's not about jumping on somebody. It's about trying to help them. But sometimes we want to get angry and get more angry because it feels so good. I was uh, driving on uh, I-40, I believe it was. I was telling brother back there, I think I've done 1,300 and something miles in the last few days. I'm done driving. I'm, uh, I'm going to walk everywhere now for a couple of weeks, I think. But this guy, you know, has a Tesla, you know. And if you've got a Tesla, that means you own the road. And you're better than everybody else, right? Man, he must have been doing 90 and cutting in and out. He cut in front of me. He, he couldn't have missed me by more than two feet. And something in me just said, you're going to die. And I told my wife, I said, if he pulls off this next exit, he will not drive that Tesla again. But thankfully, he uh, kept going and I didn't see him. You know, I, I wanted to just enforce the law on him a little bit. I mean, he's endangering people's lives. There's a reason to be angry about that. That's selfishness and not caring about what you do with anybody else. But then, it's not my job to take that anger out on that person, whoever it may have been. And it's certainly not my job. The Bible actually forbids it for me to continue to stew over that. Right? And that's what the Bible is saying here. Now, some of, of God's dearest people have a tendency to hold grudges. I know uh, that would be te you know, talking to some of you. It's just kind of your tendency. You have a long memory about the wrong things. Couldn't remember a Bible verse if your life depended on you getting a class. I can't remember anything. But boy, you can remember what somebody did wrong to you from 20 years ago but in detail. Do you know why that happened? You let the sun go down on your wrath. See, the, the Bible here is telling us, be angry about certain things. Things that are unrighteous. Things that are unholy. Especially those that are in your own life. Be angry about that. And it talks about anger in the sun. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger here is a different word from the one above. I pointed this out. Here it refers to that irritation and embitterment. You'll become bitter over this if you let the sun go down on your wrath. So this is a rule. My mentoring pastor told Julie and I as a married couple, never go to sleep angry. It's dangerous. Well, do you know what? It's also dangerous in our lives in general and in the church. If we stay upset about something overnight, it has a tendency to turn into bitterness. And you become the kind of person that's easily offended. And the kind of person that looks down on other people. And the kind of person that becomes very self-righteous. So you want to be careful and not let that happen. Yes, there are reasons to be angry sometimes for sure. But do not let that settle into your heart. 
then there's anger in Satan. Why not? Why not do that? Why should we take these actions with controlling our emotions? Because he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't open the door to the devil. If we allow anger, even the good kind of anger, to fester, it gives Satan the opportunity to cultivate bitterness and rage in our hearts. And you and I must be careful of that. If we're going to grow in Christ, you can't grow to be like Christ and have a bitter attitude at the same time. Honesty of life, controllability of emotions. Okay, here's another one. Industry at our work. Verse 28, this is part of growing. This is part of growing up in the Lord. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, you see the pattern. Don't do this. Don't steal. But do this, work, why? That we may have something to share with anyone in need. So it gives a reason again. So being industrious in our working, what's the method of our working? Let him labor, the Bible says. Don't steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work. We used to say an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Work, work. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to your children is the ability and willingness and joy of manual labor. Do not punish your children with manual labor. It's a joy. Get out and work with them. Talk about other things. When you're done, talk about what you've accomplished. Talk about how it honors the Lord. Work is not the curse. Work has been cursed. But work is not the curse. We live in a society now where people won't even work. Dear Lord, they're giving bonuses to sign on at rallies. I was, I was thinking about, is there a way to sign on and get that bonus and then not go to work? I don't know. I mean, how many burgers would I have to make to get the bonus, you know? But I've never seen a time like this. People just won't work. What, what's wrong with that? That's ungodly. It's ungodly. If you're ever going to grow in Christ, then you have to labor. you got to work. And some of you say, well, I, I, I never had a job. Some of you ladies like, I never had a job. I stayed at home. Oh, you had a job. That, that there is a job. That's like one that never ends. You guys, you guys remember this when the kids were little? Here's what God has. Don't ever tell me that God's never done anything for you, guys. In the middle of the night, that little one starts crying. And what does little Junior say? Not Daddy, Mama. And you're sitting there on the side of the bed just grinning. Thank you, Jesus. Right? God just puts that in a kid's heart. And Mom's up. Yep, there she back up. You know, it's three hours sleep. She's up for breakfast, getting the kids ready for school, and so on and so forth. It's a job, man. It's low pay, but it's a high return, so it's a job. we got to work. The motive for working, why, why should we work? To get rich, right? So that we can take everything that we make and spend it on ourselves. Isn't that the truth? Well, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The reason that we work is so that we can take care of one another. The time comes when almost everyone in here is going to have a need of some sort. And it's going to take resources out of someone's pocket. 
It's easy for us to say the church ought to help. Do you know who the church is? It's y'all. It's some of our widows that still tithe every week. It's some of you who have been faithful in giving even though you weren't certain that you were going to have a job next week. It's not some government organization out there that gets secret money from some kind of bill that's been passed in Congress. Pork barrel legislation has never helped us. That's not what's happening here. It's the people of God. Why do you think God provides work for you? Hey, I, I, have a, I have a record. I need to retire before my record gets broken, but I have a record so far. I have never had an opportunity to pray for someone to get work that they didn't get it. Every time one of God's people come to me, Pastor, I need some work, man. I'm, I'm hurting. I've got to get some work. I lost my job three weeks ago, and I got, I got some work. And every time I've ever prayed for those people, every time, it's been many times. You know how it is in Ohio. You don't ever know, right? And many times. Do you know what God has done in Chillicothe? He provided work for us. Even through all of this mess that we've gone through, He provided work for us. So we work, why? Because one of us is going to have a need. We have a benevolence fund here. We keep it up, and the deacons distribute. You say, well, why don't you ever report on that? Because here's the reason. We protect people's dignity. We're not up here to tell on people. I guess what? They had to have some money. Crazy, lazy bum. You know, that's not how that works. So there's some discretion that's used and some wisdom. And they take care of that for you. Be glad that you have deacons. If you didn't have deacons like what we have and they came to me for money, well, anyways, let's don't go there. Industry at work. Now, healthy in our conversation. So now it gets a little sticky for us. And so he talks about how we speak, how we talk. Look what he says in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see it again? Verse 29, don't do this, that's a negative, but instead do this, that's the positive, and the reason that it may give grace to those who hear. See the pattern of teaching here? He's giving you a reason. Now, healthy conversation. We have a regulation of human speech that's pointed out here to us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But instead, what we want to do is, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Okay, so... The word corrupting there means rotten. Do you realize that when we say something, it affects the soul of someone else? Your words do matter. You may think that people don't really listen to you, but your words do matter. And if you listen to your own speech, and you hear a lot of rotten stuff coming out. And I'm not talking about profanity. I mean, certainly you want to avoid that. It's not very polite. But we're talking about how we talk to people. And if we find that there's just a lot of rottenness coming out of our mouths, 
then we realize we're immature as followers of Jesus. Because instead of that, what we're supposed to be doing instead of that is building them up. Do you see that? What's good for building up as fits the occasion. So building up there, obviously, is construction word. You're, you're wanting to build something in their lives. You want to encourage them toward godliness. Now, this doesn't mean that there's never a time for correction. There certainly is a time for correction. But you guys know how it is raising children. If you're the one that's always just picking them apart and finding what's wrong all the time, you recognize that you soon will break their spirit and they will not have a will to obey. It's right to correct wrong attitudes and wrong behavior. It's right. That's okay. But be sure that we follow that up with building people up. Now, we're not talking about flattery. We're talking about building people up so that they're more like Jesus. Find something that somebody in this church is doing that looks like Jesus and thank them for it. And say, look, I recognize it's not by your power. And listen, if somebody comes to give you a word of encouragement, don't be, don't be super spiritual on us. Okay, we, we really don't need people saying, well, you know, I'm not doing it for you, I'm doing it for the Lord. <laughs> You're so smart. We know that. Because the next comment to you needs to be, but we also recognize that you got a long way to go. <laughs> so, you know, we, we all know that. But, but let God's people encourage you. Let them build you up. Take it seriously. Now, we're not talking about, hey, I really like those new shoes you got on. That's not building up. That's flattery. Or if you're trying to get something from somebody, hey, I, you know, um, I really like how nice you are. Will you teach Sunday school next year? Um, you know, so that's not it. But when you see characteristics of Christ growing in people's lives, point it out to them. What's wrong with that? Hey, you know what? I've seen in your life that you're more and more generous. And I wish I could be as generous as you. Pray for me <laughs> that I'll catch up to you. You know, you, you can tell people those things. Or I, I, I really appreciate how kind you are to everyone. You know, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I want to be as kind as you. I want to be more kind myself. Thank you for inspiring us to be kind and letting God work in your life in that way. That's what it means to build people up. Sometimes we have people in our church that build me up. They just say, love you, Pastor. Now, coming from a guy, uh, it, it's not very pretty. But it's real. The results of healthy speech. Why, why do this? that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the word grace means a blessing or a benefit. Here's, here's the bottom line. What I'm getting ready to say to someone, you need to think of this, and I have to think of this well. What I'm getting ready to say to another believer, how is this going to benefit them? Now, we, we have to understand what is the occasion. It fits the occasion. Sometimes the occasion is that people are not ready to perhaps hear something that would build them up later so you have to use a little discernment like what are they willing to receive right now and so you you build them up that's what God's people need listen I, I hey I, I'll give all the correction that's needed here probably right we got to build. we have to build each other when you catch somebody doing it right man build them up build them up in the Lord so this is a healthy conversation gracious conversation we have we have enough of the other in the world don't we Everybody's tearing each other down constantly. We have plenty of that. That's why I can't hardly stomach Twitter sometimes. Like, I can't take any more of this right now. Y'all are crazy. 
Then look in verse 30. Since it, we're talking about what are those elements or those characteristics of the new self or growing in the Lord or living life in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit. And he talks about sensitivity to the Spirit in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so what does he say? The avoidance of grieving the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what this is telling us is when we do not do these things, if we are not going to live a life of honesty, if we're not going to bring our emotions under control, if we're not going to be industrious in our work, if we're not going to be healthy in our conversation, we're going to grieve the Spirit of God. Now, this, uh, we learn something here about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, don't we? That the Spirit of God is personal. You can't grieve a force. You can't grieve an emotion. You can't grieve. So this is personal. So the, Holy, the personhood of the Holy Spirit of God is seen here. What, what do we not want to do? We, we don't want to grieve Him. We don't want to sorrow Him with our unwillingness to grow in the Lord. Now, what happens when you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Well, let's establish, first of all, what doesn't happen. Your heart is not a hotel. He doesn't check in and out. Okay, so that's not how that works. But what we do experience with the Holy Spirit of God is that relational distance. You ever had that with someone? You get crossways with them about something. You can feel the distance in the relationship. You can actually feel it. And if it's somebody that you really love and care about, it's very grieving. It's very heavy. It's very hurtful and painful for that to happen. That's what happens to the Spirit of God. And with the Spirit of God, when that distance comes, then the joy goes. When distance comes, joy goes. Your love, things of God, disappears. Your desire for God himself grows faint. What the Holy Spirit does in our lives is he personalizes this relationship with Jesus. And the relationship then, when the Holy Spirit is at a distance, the relationship then becomes very mechanical. We call it going through the motions. You done that? You ever done that with Jesus? Oh, yeah. Some of you here are doing it today. You're just going through the motions, man. Have you ever thought of this, that maybe the problem is not the preacher. It could be Pastor Dan on the guitar. That could be a real possibility. But it's probably not him. It's probably not the temperature of the building. It's probably not somebody got your parking place. The, the, the problem probably is that you are grieving the Spirit of God. And because you're grieving the Spirit of God, your relationship with Jesus has become very mechanical and you're going through the motions and you show up for church, you can't wait to get out. You know, here's the difference. When, when you're right with the Lord, you can't wait to get to church with God's people. When you're out of fellowship with the Lord, you can't wait to get out of here from God's people. Notice that. Just monitor that about yourself. You kind of know where you are. It helps. It, it, it really does help. So sensitivity to the Spirit. And then here's what happens. If you're growing in the Lord, you get this assurance by the Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Why should we not grieve the Spirit of God? Because we've been sealed by Him for the day of redemption. He Himself is the seal. Now, what, what does this mean? What's a seal? Well, you've seen seals attached and affixed to documents before. And what does that mean? It verifies that it's true. The seal is also a mark of ownership. And the seal is also 
a mark of security. Now, y'all go to Kroger's today and get you a gallon of milk. I'll guarantee you that you'll check the seal on that thing. Because if that lid is not sealed and somebody's been messing with it, you don't know what you got. But when you're sealed by the Spirit of God, His mark is upon you. You know what you got. And you have assurance. See, nobody can break that seal. It's not once broken and redone, broken and redone. It's a permanent seal. It's a permanent impression upon your soul. And all that the Father has to do is look for the seal of the Spirit and know that you belong to Jesus. Sensitivity to the Spirit. Now, let's, let's get this one. We, then we've got to wind it up. So charity toward the saints as well. So here's another area where we have to concentrate. It requires that we actively pursue this. It requires that we put our effort into these things. Now, God is going to give us the motivation to do it, and He's going to make the outcome be what it needs to be in our lives. But we have to put forth every effort. And so here's what he says. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's what, don't do that, right? That's the negative. But instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. What's the reason? Why do it? As God in Christ forgave you. Now, what, what do we have here? He talks about the eradication of sinfulness. Let all bitterness and all of that stuff. And there's a word in there maybe you're not used to seeing. It's a a little bit different word. The word clamor. And that means, the word clamor just means creating an uproar. Do you know there are people like that that join your church for the purpose of creating an uproar? Have you ever noticed that? It's like there's nothing but drama from the beginning. When we have those kind of people in doorway class, I'm like, no. (laughs) It's drama and ain't going to be nothing but drama. Uh, I've messed up a couple of times and, you know, gave people the benefit of the doubt. And then I doubted why I did that. So just, they just love clamor. I don't know if their life is in such an uproar that they don't know how to enjoy anything but uproar. I don't know if they've let their mind settle on the fact that everything in life, including uh, the church, is some kind of conspiracy that they've got to guard against. And so they just set their mind to that kind of thing, and they're always causing problems and, and, and everything else. Well, we have to take that out of our life. It's sinful. It's, it's just sinfulness. And so those things have to go out of our life. All this, there's a list of things here, the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander of each other, and then all malice, all kinds of malicious plans. All of those have to go. Instead, we have the application of kindness. What's the positive here? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. You know, be kind to people. Everybody's having a hard time. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind to one another. And look at this reconciliation factor here. Reconciliation by forgiveness. Forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. If you've never been forgiven, don't forgive. If anybody ever sins against you greater than you've sinned against God, then hold it against them. 
You see, we're told here to forgive, and this word forgive is, is kind of interesting. It's not the normal word for forgive that's used when God forgives. When God forgives, he bears the burden of that forgiveness, and then he, by his own son, has paid the debt so that the person will be able to go free. Humans don't have the ability to do that justification transaction. Listen, let me just let you in on an inside secret. Even if you come and confess your sins to me or the Holy Father or whoever, we don't have the power of that kind of forgiveness. For someone to say, uh, depart in peace, my son, your sins are forgiven, is baloney. We don't have that power in God's stead to forgive people of their sin that way so that everything's right between them and God. That's another kind of forgiveness, and humans do not have that power. The word that's used here, instead, it's one that has the word grace in it. It's charizomai, if you like that kind of sound. Here's what it's saying. Be gracious. Do something pleasant for the offender. Treat the one who has offended you and sinned against you graciously now brothers and sisters I want to offend you we have a lot of West Virginia in us we have a lot of eastern Kentucky and we only have two or three from East Tennessee so we get off the gap get off the, the the thing a little bit easier here but we are notorious as Appalachians for holding a grudge for a very long time. We want to be careful that that does not become the hallmark of our Christian existence. Culturally, we're brought up with this mindset. Don't ever let anybody wrong you. Don't let them get one over on you. If they do, they're going to pay. That's our mindset about everything. The smallest things. And so we have to fight that in our particular culture. Instead, we have to learn to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Being gracious. Being kind. Treat the offender as graciously as you can. We can't forgive like God and cause the sin to be paid for. We can't clear anyone's account in heaven, but we can clear their account in our book. Be gracious and kind and be restorative. This is what it looks like to be a growing Christian. This is what it looks like to be someone who is, has put off the old self and has put on the new self that is renewed in the spirit of your mind and created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what a holy life looks like. Honesty in life, controllability of our emotions, industry in our work, healthy in our conversation, sensitivity to the Spirit, and charity toward the saints. That's what a growing Christian looks like. Brothers and sisters, this is how you put on the new self. 
Truth is not given to us by God just to be applauded. It is meant to be applied. What do we do with this? Recognize this. Pagans have a moral code. Pagans do. There are certain things that are right and wrong, and pagans won't do them. It's just wrong, they say. But why? Why right and wrong? It's for their own glory. It's for their own pride. It may be for their country that they do it. It may be for their community that they do it. But we have different reasons. The reasons that we do these things is because God in Christ has forgiven us. Our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We, because of that truth, do these things. And that's what makes us different from the world. Let's pray together for a moment, and then we're going to enter into the Lord's Supper and celebrate that together, okay? Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for being able to take flawed people and deliver the pure word. Thank you, Father, that you take your people and all of our problems and sinfulness and rebellious attitudes and everything, and you continue by your patience to work with us. Oh God, work in the hearts of your people that we may be so profoundly different from the world that people can't help but see Jesus in us. Lord, in these dark days, help us to shine like stars against a black backdrop that the world may know that the light of Christ is in us and they may be attracted to that light for their own salvation, but also for the glory of God in Christ. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.